Who here likes museums? Okay. It's a few nerds in the house this morning. I'm not a big museum guy. There are some that I do enjoy going to a museum every now and again, until I discovered firearm museums. <clears throat> and I love museums, particular museums. I just get a kick out of it. I'm, I, I'm a firearm guy, and I've just liked that since I was just a tiny little boy. And uh, seeing the, the different change in firearms over history, the flintlock and the matchlock, and just, oh, we can make this better, we can make this better, we can make this better. That highly, highly interests me. But there's another aspect to a firearm museum that is super fascinating to me, and that is when you see a modification made on a weapon by the possessor of that weapon in order for it to be of better use in his hands. You can go and you'll see that maybe part of the stock was shaved off a little bit or sanded down a little bit, or a particular knife blade that they redesigned the edge for something for, for um, anything, for war use or for skinning an animal or whatnot. Particular grips and what they use for the grip of that knife. Now, I usually will go to these alone. <laughs> And I don't go to Firearm Museum very often, but if there's an exhibit, uh, it, it's got my attention. I love seeing what was in the mind of the possessor of this weapon, and why did he tailor it that way for what purpose and for what better use to him. So there you go. There's the illustration. Now bring it to the text. Joseph is a weapon in the hand of God. And God, in his grace and mercy is fine-tuning this weapon in his hand for his good purpose. So just as that, that owner of that flintlock or that matchlock or whatever weapon, as he looked at it and thought, you know, if I shave this down a little bit, the buttstock will come right into my shoulder, my eye will be at a better spot, I'm going to do some modification of this weapon in order that it may serve my purpose of greater use and of greater value to me. God very much does that in our lives, is doing that in our lives. And this morning in chapter 40 is sandpaper in the hand of God on Joseph to prepare him to be a better instrument in the hand of God for God's purpose. So look at, look at chapter 40 with me, if you would. We're going to cover this entire chapter, um, Lord willing. Let's see the weapon modification of this beautiful sword in the hand of God. Sometime after this. So let me back you up to verse 22 of the, the previous chapter, 39. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. ESV begins with, sometime after this. So this position that Joseph is in, where he is like the, the lead cellmate, if you will, he's in charge, he's trustworthy, he can keep an eye on the rest of these who are imprisoned here. This has been going on for some time. He's developing a reputation, a positive reputation as one who can be trusted with particular tasks. Well, he has some sovereignly hand-picked cellmates dropped in there. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and the baker 
committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. By the way, that was the description for Potiphar earlier. In the prison where Joseph was confined. It's one of those fancy meeting you here kind of passages where you could look at this and go, pure coincidence that it happens to be these two people. I think not. And you're going to see how this dramatically and profoundly is leading to God's ultimate result in the life of Joseph. So what do we have here? Joseph had been given a place of leadership and authority in prison. The cupbearer, the chief cupbearer, and the chief baker of the king It says caused an offense or committed an offense. Another translation would be sinned against. What's interesting to me, you guys, is nothing in the text says what the two chiefs did. It doesn't say that they they messed up. It doesn't say that they were seeking to do harm to the king, that they were seeking to take the king's life. We know nothing except an offense was committed by these two to the point he took both of them, put them in prison. And they happen to be there with Joseph, who as well is in prison for what took place with Potiphar's wife. So Pharaoh, in his anger, imprisoned these two chiefs. They happen to be put under the attendance of this slave, Joseph. Now, I want you to notice this. Apart from any of Joseph's doing, all this has come together. The reason that's important is because of the last statement made in chapter 39 where it said, but everything he did, God caused it to succeed. See, it it makes me think kind of like of, of David and Goliath. Goliath was strong, beefy, tall, broad shouldered, and a well trained soldier. And David was a young, wimpy kid whose Saul's uh, armor didn't fit. There's just one small difference. David has God, (laughs) and uh, Goliath doesn't. Well, in the exact same thing, here's Joseph. There's just one small difference, is that this slave has the king of the universe working behind the scenes in the life and through the life of this guy. And that, that changes everything. You use the phrase, it's a game changer, right? Because you go, oh, he's just a wimpy slave. You know, he was fooling around with Potiphar's wife, and so he got thrown in the slammer. He's there. Well, that's one vantage point. That's one camera angle. But let me give you another camera angle. I'll give you the camera angle of Almighty God. No, that's my chosen vessel. Has been since day one. I revealed it to him in a dream, and we are on the fast Maybe not according to Joseph, but according to God. Fast track to him being second in command in Egypt, and he's going to save hundreds of people's lives, and he will be brought back together with his family. All according to the sovereign plan of God. So it's interesting, isn't it not, how you look at the two different camera angles on one life and see what's going on there? This continued for a while, this particular setup, perhaps developing a friendship. Um, And what I mean is between the cupbearer and the baker. Uh, We're told that they were given into the charge of Joseph, 
and then this went on for a while. So Joseph still has his place of authority. Joseph still has his, his place of, of leadership, of being trustworthy. But now he has these two high officials, if you will, put there in his place. And now it's his job to keep an eye on them. Now, remember, there's not a whole lot to do in prison. And so I imagine they begin to talk to one another. They begin to grow in their understanding of one another. Why is that important? Because Joseph, by their very demeanor, is going to pick out how things are going for these men. So, let's look at the first dream. Look at verse 5. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined to prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came in to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Now, this, I don't want you to pass it too quickly. What's taken place? Both men had a separate dream. Both men have an interpretation to that dream. But before we go to the dream category, do you notice that Joseph is to a point in his life where he's sympathetic enough, sensitive enough, with an eye for other people enough that he caught by their demeanor something changed in the demeanor of these two? Now, remember, there's two things working here, right? Not only does he have a a level of sensitivity, it's his job. Your job is to see to them and make sure they're okay. If they get sick and die, that's on your watch, Joseph. You need to to do a good job. And so he walks in and recognizes in their demeanor, uh, they have changed dramatically. Joseph has developed a sympathetic soul. He recognized a change in the demeanor of those in his charge. This is absolutely a leadership quality being developed in Joseph. Now, here's the the hub of this message, and I think the main hub of this chapter, is that sandpaper, that sharpening stone that God is using on Joseph. He's developing him. He's developing Joseph. Just as we saw before, brothers and sisters, when we were looking at the life of Jacob, and you go back and forth and back and forth with Jacob, and you go, what is going on in this passage? Well, God is at work in the man. God's shaping the man. He is fine-tuning the weapon, the instrument, for a greater purpose. And so it's interesting to me, throughout the storyline of Joseph, you'll see phrases like, and this went on for some time. Well, that's a whole pocket of white space in my Bible. So what's going on in that white space? Nothing? Is that wasted time? No, 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 no. God in his grace is shaping and molding and producing one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. All right, so down down at the book. Here we go. Um, Verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, just setting that stage of where they are, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Uh, 
culturally at this time, dreams were very much a hot commodity in Egypt. They had particular interpreters of dreams who would come and they would have different guidelines they would follow to interpret dreams. So when they say there is no one who can interpret in them, they're speaking from their own culture there in Egypt. We don't have any of the professional interpreters to come and tell us what's going on with these dreams. And Joseph, by reflex, answers immediately to that. Look down at your Bible. Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? I just wonder, if you could watch this on video, what the, what the facial reaction was of the two men. Because remember, in Egypt... A plethora of gods, many gods. A plethora of dream interpreters, many interpreters. Guidelines. This is big business. This is, a, this is a big part of their culture. And Joseph, without skipping a beat, immediately just says, well, no, that all belongs to God. Well, the question I would have if I was one of these officials is, which one? See, you have to be... Um, meticulous in your study with Joseph because there are tiny little hints throughout the storyline that shows Joseph is a continual or is continually walking in trust and faith in the Lord and maturing. You see that in his reference to he is sensitive to them, he's sympathetic to them and his immediate reaction is no that's God's job. No God does that. Only God does that. Which is a complete um going against the very grain of the culture he's been living in to talk like that. This would speak volumes to them. It makes me think of Jonah. Remember when the sailors are out with Jonah and they say, why don't you pray to your God and maybe he'll, he'll help us perhaps. But before then, they even asked Jonah, who are you? And he says that he's a prophet of the Almighty God, the one true God. Well, here's Joseph immediately. His immediate response is, that belongs to God singular. There's more going on in this young man than merely a bum rap and he's in a prison cell eating poor food. God's at work in him. Nothing's wasted. But did you notice what he says next? And this is what is so interesting, you guys, about this passage. You notice what he says next? Only God has the interpretation. So tell me. Isn't that weird? Only God had. So tell me. Why would he say that? Now, this is, these, are, these are those questions that my chair goes back on, okay? Because i got to sit back and think, why, why is he doing that? What's he talking about here? Well, here's, here's my best shot. He is the only representative of the one true living God in the cell. So you tell me. Don't, don't tell the cupbearer, don't, don't tell this. They don't know. They just said they don't know, right? Why are you downcast? Because we both had dreams, and there's nobody to interpret. Well, only the sovereign God of the universe can interpret, so tell me. Why? Because I know him. I'm connected to him. I am a worshiper of the one true and living God. In a very real way, beloved, this is a powerful witness unto the God of the universe before these two men. So verse 9, let me see 
see where I'm at in my notes. Okay. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. I mean, there's no, there's no if, ands, or buts, and there's no time in between. He tells it, Joseph immediately says, boom, interpretation. Do you, do you feel the, or, or sense the gall in this young man? Only God can interpret that. So tell me, they tell him, this is the interpretation. And I find it fascinating, beloved, that his response is not, I think. Or perhaps. But profound assurance and certainty, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his cup bearer. Joseph spoke directly against the culture of his day, pointing this to God, and now he's been given the dream, and now he's given the interpretation. So very simple, uh, if you look at actually how he interprets it and what it means. A vine of three branches, instant maturing, buds blossom, and ripen clusters of grapes appear. It's like a super, super quick um, crop. The grapes are pressed into Pharaoh's cup and put into his hand. Joseph's interpretation, three branches equals three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you back to your position. Now, notice what he does next, okay? Only, verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. He didn't, that's, I put the exclamation point at the end. <clears throat> now, when you read that, you've got to ask the question, so wait a second, Joseph, I thought you trusted God. <laughs> does he trust God? Or does he trust the, the good intent of this guy? Answer? Yes. <laughs> I believe he absolutely trusts God, and I believe he absolutely is hoping that this man will be used of God to go and mention a good word for him. See, the wisdom and the good work of Joseph is not contrary to his trust in the sovereignty of God. They're linked. Handcuffs, there's a chain in between. You've got to have both. Wings of an airplane. You only have one. It doesn't go well, so I've read, so you've got to have both of them. And so the wisdom of what he does here and his trust in God, I believe, are absolutely a part of what he does. So he says, put in a good word for me when it is well with you. I do not believe in any way, shape, or form that Joseph's action here is out of a lack of faith. By no means. But rather, I will sit, trust, rest, and I'll work when I have the opportunity. I will, I will pursue it when I have 
the opportunity. So Joseph simply requests that the cupbearer put in a good word for him. Joseph's trust in God didn't cancel Joseph's pursuit to get out of the place. Joseph knew very well that he was there completely unjustly. If you notice, um, the second thing he says in verse 15, he says, For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and there also I have done nothing, or and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. I find it interesting that that description is... Uh, of, of the prison he's in is the pit. That's where you've put me. That's where I'm stranded. That's where I'm stuck. I wonder what is going on. Mention a good word because I'm not here by any true reason. I've done nothing. I did nothing to Potiphar's wife. I've been nothing but a blessing unto Potiphar. I've been nothing but a blessing unto this jail. This is, uh, I was put here unjustly. Okay, so now the second piece to this is you have all that that just took place, right? Well, now there's this baker guy over here. And the baker goes, hmm, that panned out well. I had a dream too. Let me tell you my dream. So let's look at the second dream from the chief baker, verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream And here goes the threes again. They were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Now, what do you think his expectation is of the interpretation? In three days, you will be restored unto your current position, and you will bake bread for Pharaoh once again, just like the cupbearer, and you guys are back in the game. Notice, because it started by him saying, he's after seeing that it was a favorable interpretation for the cupbearer, he's now saying, I want some favorable interpretation. Here's my dream. Sounds a lot like the cupbearer's. I expect this to go well for me. I'm curious what Joseph's facial expression was right before he gave this one. Even more curious about the facial expression of the baker after he hears this one. But All right, let's hear what he says. And Joseph answered and said, verse 18, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Okay, good so far. Good, good, good. Verse 19. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Just another little addition from you, and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Uh, This hanging on the tree is not like hanging in the sense that that's the mode in which he was put to death. Rather, it means a public spectacle. He'll be hung out for everybody to see. So the, the idea is that his head would be probably chopped off, removed, and then put out, and then the birds will eat his flesh. A li- just a little different than the cupbearer's interpretation. Now, you think about Joseph not skipping a beat, not second-guessing, not asking any questions of himself, but in complete certainty and confidence, this is the interpretation. 
There's something there that is supernatural, powerful, and a gift of Almighty God to Joseph in this moment. Um, I mean, if you want to, I'm going to read, it's just a short little passage, but in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that this was how God worked. In Hebrews 1, it says, long ago, chapter 1, verse 1, long ago at many times, and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And as you track through your Old Testament, you see consistently the Lord communicating revelations to his prophets, to his men in the Old Testament scriptures in so many different varying ways. Be it the burning bush, be it a vision, be it a dream, so on and so forth. And then Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that, but now he speaks to us in his Son. And so, you know, folks like to talk about dreams currently and, and all that kind of stuff. My rule is just a very simple rule. I don't get caught in the fray in the debate. I just say, if it lines up with Scripture, God bless you. But the Scripture is my source and where I base everything from. It is my authority. And where I get uncomfortable in our day is when people say, God in a dream told me to do, and you fill in the blank, and it's completely contrary to the Word of God. That's not God. This is the test. This is the canon, the measuring rod by which we judge all of that. Simultaneously, there are folks who say God never, ever, ever speaks through dreams. And all I say is, can you show me in the New Testament where it says that he doesn't? I can show you where it's not normative after a certain portion of the New Testament, but I cannot show you in the New Testament where it says God never, ever does that. So hopefully everybody in this room is uncomfortable right now. Because I want to be fair with the word. It'd be easy for me to say, God never speaks through dreams anymore. It's just the Old Testament, and now that's done. And it'd be very easy for me to say, every dream needs to be interpreted no matter what, and you figure it out. Well, then I guess I will meet Hulk Hogan someday. So, my my answer is, you have a deep impression, something deep impressed in on your heart from a dream, and you say, Lord... Was there something being communicated there? I would just always point you back to the Word. Always go back to the Word. Test the spirits. Test everything by the sacred scripture. That's the practice of the New Testament believers. Remember the, uh, um, that, that group of people. Which group was it, Dennis, again? The, the, they read the scriptures daily. Um, the Bereans. The Bereans were more noble because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what was being taught by the Apostle Paul was true. So nobility, and that's a good word here, the more noble believers were the ones that searched out the text to see if this is the truth. That's what your Bible says. So I I don't get into the debate or the argument about it. I I don't have any desire to do that. I'm going to go back to the Word. That's the ground I stand on. But what we do see in the book of Hebrews with great clarity 
is that we're told through many different ways and in many different times, the Lord spoke through his prophets. And so I am not ever going to read chapter 40 and say, did he really have the interpretation? You bet your boots he had the interpretation. Sovereign God of the universe spoke through a dream, gave an interpretation, and accomplished his good purpose. Through it, every bit as much as that Moses went and spoke with the Lord at a burning bush. All right. Now, dreams do come true. Look at verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. Now, meaning he he brought them up. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, just like was said by Joseph. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Notice verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And verse 1 of 41, after, and ESV puts it this way, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. And it goes into Pharaoh's dream, which we'll cover uh, in the next few, few messages. But after two whole years. So remember, okay, this guy, oh, we had a bad dream. It's been so discouraging. We're not sure what to do. Nobody is here to interpret. Can you help us? Interpretation is of the Lord, so tell me. They tell him, boom, here's the interpretation. Totally happens for the cupbearer, totally happens for the baker. Baker is now dead, and the cupbearer is restored back to his position, and the cupbearer says, yippee, freedom, I'm back to where I was. Joseph who? An absolute, and I was thinking about this, I find it tough to believe he didn't even think of the guy. Two years? You didn't wake up one morning and have a cup of coffee there in Egypt and looked over the, the atmosphere and, oh, it's pretty more. Hey, Joseph. Ah, oh, Joseph. Yeah. You never? Never? Maybe there's something more there. Maybe he was scared to bring him up to the leadership because we all know about what happened with him and Potiphar's wife and da 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 Maybe. I don't know. But here's the other camera lens. The Lord has more work to do in Joseph. You're going to stay there, Joseph. God, it hurts, and I'm here unjustly. I know, but you're going to stay there. And I'm going to continue my fine-tuning in your life. The Lord never forgot Joseph in any of his crisis, ever. Cupbearer? Yeah, you bet, totally forgot. Potiphar's wife, she's like, oh, finally, get this guy out of here. He embarrassed me so bad. Potiphar, folded like a cheap lawn chair. Yeah, okay, you're going to go to prison. Cupbearer, baker, all these different people. Who cares about Joseph? Well, let me ask you another way. Who cares about Joseph? The Lord is with him. The Lord's at work in him. The Lord is at work through him. And so you can look at that, guys, and you can read it with a sad demeanor. Two whole years. But I am convinced in those times where you are in like a pressure cooker of life is where the Lord's doing some of his greatest fine-tuning in the life of a Christian. When I have an easy day, a day that just goes well and goes according to my, my plan, 
I don't, I don't grow as much. I'm not as needy. I'm not as pursuing the Lord as much. But those moments where the, the clock seems to be moving half as slow as usual, or half as fast as usual, and it feels like time's just dragging on, and I just need to know an answer. I just need to know what's going on. What's happening here? Oh, the Lord is just richly at work in his, in his beloved bride. The Lord's at work there. He's creating something in you, in me. The Lord never forgot Joseph in anything. 41.1 tells us that Joseph then continued there two whole years in prison. Was this wasted time? And that's really the, the, the punch of this message is, was this wasted time? Was this time where, hey, Joseph, grit your teeth, it's almost over, and then you can get back to real life? Absolutely not. The Lord was in control and was heavily modifying his weapon in his hands for his good purpose. He has an incredible task for Joseph to do But Joseph, you're not ready yet. You're not ready yet. And so I need you, I am going to put you a couple more years in the fryer. I'm going to put you a couple more years with some intense difficulty. Because you're not ready yet. I'm going to do some chipping on you. It would be interesting, beloved, to just sit down with each of you, and I've done this with a number of you, just sit down with each of you and ask you this question. Can you point to a time where you were extremely struggling and it was extremely difficult, and now post that time, you look back on it and go, God did such stuff during that time. God was so at work during that time. I haven't lived very long, but I will share with you that... um, God had Amber and I in the church for almost four years in Eastern Oregon, and, and it was a trial for us. This is a 22-year-old pastor, new wife, new baby, a, a hurting church, a church that in some ways um, didn't want us, and away from family for the first time, and all, I can give you all my wah-wah story if you want to hear it. And I, and I had self-pity and all those Ugly, ugly things. Unity Oregon was the best sharpening stone I could have asked for. The best sharpening stone. Now, I don't want to go back, but, but, and it's not that, you know, our 12 years here have been peachy keen. It, it has for the most part, but those four years, and I'm talking not because of the church, I'm talking about because of Dan Mason's Immaturity, selfishness, fill in the blank. I needed to be in the prison. I needed to be there. God's doing stuff. You, where you are at right now in your life, God is doing something. He's got a a fine-tuned stone, and he's just shaving off a little bit more. He's making you more and more available, more and more usable in his hand shaping and molding each and every one of you. It does not matter what age you are. If you, if you check, you got a pulse this morning, brothers and sisters. God has you here on purpose. He's shaping you and preparing you for what's next. 
And ultimately, this is the cool part, he's shaping you for the ultimate what's next. He's preparing you for heaven. He's preparing you for the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ or your glorious coming to him in your death. So, if you would, James chapter 1, we'll close with this passage. James chapter 1, <coughs> and look at verse 2. Most of you, or many of you, I would think, have this, this passage memorized. Now, it's interesting, because in my Bible, there's, there's another word here in my handwriting that says, count it all bearable. Just kidding. <laughs> What's your Bible say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And there's many passages that speak to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that you've been comforted with a comfort in order that you may comfort those with the comfort you were comforted with. Hopefully you followed that. The way in which God comforted you, now you've got the stuff to comfort those in the same pain that you experienced. That beautiful sharpening stone, the Lord, whatever it is right now in your life, that sharpening stone, Almighty God, is at work. There is no wasted time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.